Chapter Fourteen of the Ivory Child by H. Rider Haggard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen: The Chase. I suppose that I swooned for a minute or two. At any rate, I remember a long and very curious dream, such a dream as is evolved by a patient under laughing gas, that is very clear and vivid at the time, but immediately afterwards slips from the mind's grasp as does water from the clenched hand. It was something to the effect that those hundreds of skeleton elephants rose and marshalled themselves before me, making obeisance to me by bending their bony knees, because, as I quite understood, I was the only human being that had ever escaped from Jana. Moreover, on the foremost elephant's skull, Hans was perched like a mahout, giving words of command to their serried ranks, and explaining to them that it would be very convenient if they would carry their tusks, for which they had no further use, and pile them in a certain place, I forget where, that must be near to a good road to facilitate their subsequent transport to a land where they would be made into billiard-balls and the backs of ladies' hair-brushes. Next, through the figments of that retreating dream, I heard the undoubted voice of Hans himself, which of course I knew to be absurd, as Hans was lost and doubtless dead, saying, "'If you are alive, Baas, please wake up soon, as I have finished reloading in Tombe, and it is time to be going. I think I hit Jana in the eye, but so big a beast will soon get over so little a thing as that and look for us, and the bullet from Ntombi is too small to kill him, Baas.' especially as it is not likely that either of us could hit him in the other eye. Now I sat up and stared. Yes, there was Hans himself, looking just the same as usual, only perhaps rather dirtier, engaged in setting a cap on to the nipple of that little rifle in Tombi. Hans, I said in a hollow voice, why the devil are you here? To save you from the devil, of course, Baas, he replied aptly. Then, resting the gun against the stone, the old fellow knelt down by my side, and, throwing his arms around me, began to blubber over me, exclaiming, "'Just in time, Baz, only just in time, for, as usual, Hans made a mess of things and judged badly. I'll tell you afterwards. Still, just in time, thanks be to your reverend father, the predicant. Oh, if he had delayed me for one more minute, you would have been as flat as my nose, Baz. Now, come quickly.' I've got the camel tied up here, and he can carry two, being fat and strong after four days' rest with plenty to eat. This place is haunted, boss, and that king of the devil's Jana will be back after us presently, as soon as he has wiped the blood out of his eye. I didn't make any remark, having no taste for conversation just then, but only looked at poor Marut, who lay by me as though he were sleeping. "'Oh, boss,' said Hans, "'there is no need to trouble about him, for his neck is broken and he's quite dead. "'Also, it is as well,' he added cheerfully, "'for, as your reverend father doubtless remembered, the camel could never carry three. "'Moreover, if he stops here, poor Jana will come back to play with him instead of following us.' "'Poor Marut! This was his requiem as sung by Hans.' With a last glance at the unhappy man to whom I had grown attached in a way during our time of joint captivity and trial, I took the arm of the old Hottentot, or rather leant upon his shoulder, for at first I felt too weak to walk by myself, and picked my path with him through the stones and skeletons of elephants, across the plateau eastwards, that is, away from the lake. About two hundred yards from the scene of our tragedy was a mound of rock similar to that on which Jana had appeared, but much smaller, 
behind which we found the camel, kneeling as a well-trained beast of the sort should do, and tethered to a stone. As we went, in brief but sufficient language, Hans told me his story. It seemed that after he shot the Kenda general it came into his cunning, foreseeing mind that he might be of more use to me free than as a companion in captivity, or that if I were killed he might in that case live to bring vengeance on my slayers. So he broke away, as has been described, and hid till nightfall on the hillside. Then, by the light of the moon, he tracked us, avoiding the villages, and ultimately found a place of shelter in a kind of cave in the forest near Simba Town, where no people lived. Here he fed the camel at night, concealing it at dawn in the cave. The days he spent up a tall tree, whence he could watch all that went on in the town beneath, living meanwhile on some food which he carried in a bag tied to the saddle, helped out by green mealies which he stole from a neighbouring field. Thus he saw most of what passed in the town, including the desolation wrought by the fearful tempest of hail, which, being in their cave, both he and the camel escaped without harm. On the next evening from his post of outlook up the tree, where he had now some difficulty in hiding himself because the hail had stripped off all of its leaves, he saw Marut and myself brought from the guest-house and taken away by the escort. Descending and running to the cave, he saddled the camel and started in pursuit, plunging into the forest and hiding there when he perceived that the escort were leaving us. Here he waited until they had gone by on their return journey. So close did they pass to him that he could overhear their talk, which told him they expected, or rather were sure, that we should be destroyed by the elephant Jana, their devil-god, to whom the camel-men had already been sacrificed. After they had departed he remounted and followed us. Here I asked him why he had not overtaken us before we came to the cemetery of elephants, as I presumed he might have done, since he stated that he was close to our rear. This indeed was the case, for it was the head of the camel I saw behind the thorn-trees when I looked back, and not the trunk of an elephant, as I had supposed. At the time he would give me no direct answer, except that he grew muddled, as he had already suggested, and thought it best to keep in the background and see what happened. Long afterwards he admitted to me that he acted on a presentment. "'It seemed to me, Bas,' he said, that your reverend father was telling me that I should do best to let you two go on and not show myself, since if I did so we should all three be killed, as one of us must walk whom the other two could not desert. Whereas if I left you as you were, one of you would be killed and the other escape, and that the one to be killed would not be you, Bas, all of which came about as the spirit spoke to my head, for Marut was killed, who did not matter, and— you know the rest, Bas. To return to Hans' story, he saw us march down to the borders of the lake, and, keeping to our right, took cover behind the knoll of rock, whence he watched also all that followed. When Jana advanced to attack us, Hans crept forward in the hope, a very wild one, of crippling him with a little purdy rifle. Indeed, he was about to fire at the hind leg when Marut made his run for life and plunged into the lake. Then he crawled on to lead me away to the camel, but when he was within a few yards the chase returned our way, and Marut was killed. From that moment he waited for an opportunity to shoot Jana in the only spot where so soft a bullet would, as he knew, have the faintest chance of injuring him vitally, namely, in the eye. For he was sure that its penetration would not be sufficient to reach the vitals through that thick hide and the mass of flesh behind. With an infinite and wonderful patience he waited, knowing that my life or death hung in the balance. 
while Jonah held his foot over me, while he felt me with his trunk, still Hans waited, balancing the arguments for and against firing upon the scales of experience in his clever old mind, and in the end coming to a right and wise conclusion. At length his chance came, the brute exposed his eye, and by the light of the clear moon Hans, always a very good shot at a distance when it was not necessary to allow for trajectory and wind, let drive and hit. The bullet did not get to the brain as he had hoped, he had not the strength for that, but it destroyed this left eye and gave Jana such pain that for a while he forgot all about me and everything else except escape. Such was the Hottentot's tale as I picked up from his laconic, colourless Dutch patois sentences, then and afterwards, a very wonderful tale, I thought. But for him, his fidelity and his bushman's cunning, where should I have found myself before that moon set? We mounted the camel after I had paused a minute to take a pull from a flask of brandy which remained in the saddlebags. Although he loved strong drink so well, Hans had saved it untouched, on the mere chance that it might some time be of service to me, his master. The monkey-like Hottentot sat in front and directed the camel, while I accommodated myself as best I could on the sheepskins behind. Luckily they were thick and soft, for Jonas Pinch was not exactly that of a lover. Off we went, picking our way carefully till we reached the elephant track beyond the mound where Jana had appeared, which, in the light of faith, we hoped would lead us to the river Tava. Here we made better progress, but still could not go very fast because of the holes made by the feet of Jana and his company. Soon we had left the cemetery behind us, and lost the sight of the lake which I devoutly trusted I might never see again. Now the track ran upwards from the hollow to a ridge two or three miles away, we reached the crest of this ridge without accident, except that on our road we met another aged elephant, a cow with very poor tusks, travelling to its last resting-place, or so, I suppose. I don't know which was the more frightened, the sick cow or the camel, for camels hate elephants as horses hate camels until they get used to them. The cow bolted to the right as quickly as it could, which was not very fast, and the camel bolted to the left with such convulsive bounds that we were nearly thrown off its back. However, being an equable brute, it soon recovered its balance, and we got back to the track beyond the cow. From the top of the rise we saw that before us lay a sandy plain lightly clothed in grass, and, to our joy, about ten miles away at the foot of a very gentle slope, the moonlight gleamed upon the waters of a broad river. It was not easy to make out, but it was there, we were both sure it was there, we could not mistake the wavering silvering flash. On we went for another quarter of a mile when something caused me to turn round on the sheepskin and look back. Oh, heavens! At the very top of the rise, clearly outlined against the sky, stood Jana himself with his trunk lifted. Next instant he trumpeted a furious, rattling challenge of rage and defiance. "'Al Magdibas,' said Hans, "'the old devil is coming to look for his lost eye, and has seen us with what remains. He has been travelling on our spoor.' "'Forward,' I answered, bringing my heels into the camel's ribs. Then the race began. The camel was a very good camel, one of the real running breed. Also, as Hans said, it was comparatively fresh, and may, moreover, have been aware that it was near to the plains where it had been bred. Lastly, the going was now excellent, soft to its spongy feet, but not too deep in sand, nor were there any rocks over which it could fall. It went off like the wind— 
making nothing of our united weights which did not come to more than two hundred pounds, or half of what it would carry with ease, being perhaps urged to its top speed by the knowledge that the elephant was behind. For mile after mile we rushed down the plain, but we did not go alone, for Jonna came after us like a cruiser after a gunboat. Moreover, swiftly as we travelled, he travelled just a little swifter, gaining, say, a few yards in every hundred. For the last mile before we came to the river-bank, half an hour later, perhaps, though it seemed to be a week, he was not more than fifty paces to our rear. I glanced back at him, and in the light of the moon, which was growing low, he bore a strange resemblance to a mud cottage with broken chimneys, which were his ears flapping on each side of him, and the yard-pump projecting from the upper window. "'We shall beat him now, Hans,' I said, looking at the broad river, which was now close at hand. "'Yes, boss,' answered Hans, doubtfully, and in jerks. "'This is a very good camel, boss. He runs so fast, but I have no inside left. I suppose because he smells his wife over that river, to say nothing of death behind him. But, boss, I am not sure. That devil Jana is still faster than the camel, and he wants to settle for his lost eye, which makes him lively. Also I see stones ahead, which are bad for camels. Then there is the river, and I don't know if camels can swim, but Jana can be as Marut learned. Do you think, boss, that you could manage to sting him with a bullet in his knee, or that great trunk of his, just to give him something to think about besides ourselves? Thus he prattled on, I believe to occupy my mind and his own, till at length, growing impatient, I replied, Be silent, donkey. Can I shoot an elephant backward over my shoulder with a rifle meant for springbuck? Hit the camel! Is it hard? Alas, Hans was right. There were stones at the verge of the river, which doubtless it had washed out in periods of past flood, and presently we were among them. Now a camel, so good on sand that is its native heath, is a worthless brute among stones, over which it slips and flounders. But to Jana these appeared to offer little or no obstacle. At any rate he came over them almost, if not quite as fast as before. By the time that we reached the brink of the water, he was not more than ten yards behind. I could even see the blood running down from the socket of his ruined eye. Moreover, at the sight of the foaming but shallow torrent, the camel, a creature unaccustomed to water, pulled up in a mulish kind of way, and for a moment refused to stir. Luckily, at this instant, Jana let off one of his archangel kind of trumpetings, which started our beast again, since it was more afraid of elephants than it was of water. In we went, and were presently floundering among the loose stones at the bottom of the river, which was nowhere over four feet deep, with Jana splashing after us not more than five yards behind. I twisted myself round and fired at him with a rifle. Whether I hit him or no I could not say, but he stopped for a few seconds, perhaps because he remembered the effect of a similar explosion upon his eye, which gave us a trifling start. Then he came on again in his steam-engine fashion. When we were about in the middle of the river the inevitable happened. The camel fell, pitching us over its head into the stream. Still clinging to the rifle, I picked myself up and began half to swim, half to wade towards the farther shore, catching hold of Hans with my free hand. In a moment Jana was on to that camel. He 
gored it with his tusks, he trampled it with his feet, he got it round the neck with his trunk, dragging nearly the whole bulk of it out of the water. Then he set to work to pound it down into the mud and stones at the bottom of the river, with such a persistent thoroughness that he gave us time to reach the other bank and climb up a stout tree which grew there, a sloping, flat-topped kind of tree that was fortunately easy to ascend, at least for a man. Here we sat, gasping, perhaps about thirty feet above the ground level, and waited. Presently Jana, having finished with the camel, followed us, and without any difficulty located us in that tree. He walked all round it, considering the situation. Then he wound his huge trunk around the bole of the tree, and, putting out his strength, tried to pull it over. It was an anxious moment, but this particular child of the forest had not grown there for some hundreds of years, withstanding all the shocks of wind, weather, and water, in order to be laid low by an elephant, however enormous. It shook a little, no more. Abandoning this attempt as futile, Jana began to try to dig it up by driving his tusk under the roots. Here he failed, because they grew among stones which evidently jarred him. Ceasing from these agricultural efforts with a deep rumble of rage, he adopted yet a third expedient. Rearing his huge bulk into the air, he brought down his forefeet with all the tremendous weight of his great body behind them, onto the sloping trunk of the tree just below where the branches sprang, perhaps twelve or thirteen feet above the ground. The shock was so heavy that for a moment I thought the tree would be uprooted or snapped in two. Thank heaven it held! but the vibration was such that Hans and I were nearly shaken out of the upper branches, like autumn apples from a bough. Indeed, I think I should have gone had not the monkey-like Hans, who had toes to cling with as well as fingers, gripped me by the collar. Thrice did Jana repeat this manoeuvre. At the third onslaught I saw to my horror that the roots were loosening. I heard some of them snap, and a crack appeared in the ground not far from the bowl. Fortunately, Jana never noted these symptoms, for abandoning a plan which he considered unavailing, he stood for a while swaying his trunk and lost in gentle thought. "'Hans,' I whispered, "'load the rifle, quick! I can get him in the spine or the other eye!' "'Wet powder won't go off, boss,' groaned Hans. "'The water got to it in the river.' "'No,' I answered. "'And it is all your fault for making me shoot at him when I could take no aim.' "'It would have been just the same, boss.' for the rifle went under water also when we fell from the camel, and the cap would have been damp, and perhaps the powder too. Also the shot made Jana stop for a moment. This was true, but it was maddening to be obliged to sit there with an empty gun, when if I had but one charge, or even my pistol, I was sure that I could have blinded or crippled this satanic pachyderm. A few minutes later Jana played his last card, Coming quite close to the trunk of the tree, he reared himself up as before, but this time stretched out his forelegs, so that these and his body were supported on the broad bowl. Then he elongated his trunk, and with it began to break off boughs which grew between us and him. "'I don't think he can reach us,' I said doubtfully to Hans. "'That is, unless he brings a stone to stand on.' "'Oh, boss, pray be silent,' answered Hans, "'or he will understand and fetch one.' Though the idea seemed absurd, on the whole I thought it well to take the hint, for who knew how much this experienced beast did or did not understand? 
Then, as we could go no higher, we wriggled as far as we dared along our boughs, and waited. Presently Jana, having finished his clearing operations, began to lengthen his trunk to its full measure. Literally, it seemed to expand like a telescope or india-rubber ring. Out it came, foot after foot, till its snapping tip was waving within a few inches of us, just short of my foot and Hans's head, or rather felt hat. One final stretch, and he reached the hat, which he removed with a flourish, and thrust it into the red cavern of his mouth. As it appeared no more, I suppose he ate it. This loss of his hat moved Hans to fury, hurling horrible curses at Jana. He drew his butcher's knife, and made ready. Once more the sinuous brown trunk elongated itself. Evidently Jana had got a better hold with his hind legs this time, or perhaps he had actually wriggled himself a few inches up the tree. At any rate, I saw to my dismay that there was every prospect of my making a second acquaintance with that snapping tip. The end of the trunk was lying along my bough like a huge brown snake, and creeping up, up, up. "'He'll get us,' I muttered. Hans said nothing, but leaned forward a little, holding on with his left hand. Next instant, in the light of the rising sun, I saw a knife flash— saw also that the point of it had been driven through the lower lip of Jana's trunk, pinning it to the bow like a butterfly to a board. My word, what a commotion ensued! Up the trunk came a scream which nearly blew me away. Then Jana, with a wriggling motion, tried to unnail himself as gently as possible, for it was clear that the knife-point hurt him, but could not do so because Hans still held the handle and had driven the blade deep into the wood. Lastly, he dragged himself downwards with such energy that something had to go, that something being the skin and muscle of the lower lip, which was cut clean through, leaving the knife erect in the bow. Over he went backwards, a most imperial cropper. Then he picked himself up, thrust the tip of his trunk into his mouth, sucked it as one does a cut finger, and finally, roaring in defeated rage, fled into the river, which he waded, back upon his tracks towards his own home. Yes, off he went, Hans screaming curses and demands that he should restore his hat to him, and very seldom in all my life have I seen a sight that I thought more beautiful than that of his whisking tail. Now, boss, chuckled Hans, the old devil has got a sword nose as well as a sore eye by which to remember us. But, boss, I think we had better be going before he has time to think and comes back with a long stick to knock us out of this tree. So we went, in double-quick time, I can assure you, or at any rate as fast as my stiff limbs and general condition would allow. Fortunately we had now no doubt as to our direction, since standing up through the mists of dawn with sunbeams rusting on its forest-clad crest, we could clearly see the strange tumulus-shaped hill which the White Kender called the Holy Mount, the home of the child. It appeared to be about twenty miles away, but in reality was a good deal farther— for when we had walked for several hours it seemed almost as distant as ever. In truth, that was a dreadful trudge. Not only was I exhausted with all the terrors I had passed and our long midnight flight, but the wound where Jana had pinched out a portion of my frame, inflamed by the riding, had now grown stiff and intolerably sore, so that every step gave me pain which sometimes culminated in agony. Moreover, it was no use giving in. Foodless as we were, for Marut had carried the provisions, and with the chance of Jana returning to look us up. So I stuck to it and said nothing. 
For the first ten miles the country seemed uninhabited. Doubtless it was too near to the borders of the Black Kenda to be popular as a place of residence. After this we saw herds of cattle and a few camels, apparently untended. Perhaps their guards were hidden away in the long grass. Then we came to some fields of mealies that were, I noticed, quite untouched by the hailstorm, which, it would seem, had confined its attentions to the land of the Black Kenda. Of these we ate, thankfully enough. A little farther on we perceived huts perched on an inaccessible place in a kloof. Also their inhabitants perceived us, for they ran away as though in a great fright. Still, we did not try to approach the huts, not knowing how we should be received. After my sojourn in Simba town, I had become possessed of a love of life in the open. For another two hours I limped forward with pain and grief. By now I was leaning on Hans's shoulder, up an endless uncultivated rise clothed with euphorbias and fern-like cicads. At length we reached its top and found ourselves within a rifle-shot of a fenced native village. I suppose that its inhabitants had been warned of our coming by runners from the huts I have mentioned. At any rate, the moment we appeared, the men, to the number of thirty or more, poured out of the south gate armed with spears and other weapons, and proceeded to ring us round and behave in a very threatening manner. I noticed at once that, although most of them were comparatively light in colour, some of these men partook of the negroid characteristics of the black kenda, from whom we had escaped, to such an extent indeed that this blood was clearly predominant in them. Still, it was also clear that they were deadly foes of this people, for when I shouted out to them that we were friends of Harut, and those who worshipped the child, they yelled back that we were liars. No friend of the child, they said, came from the country of the Black Kender who worshipped the devil Jana. I tried to explain that least of all men in the world did we worship Jana, who had been hunting us for hours, but they would not listen. You are spies of Simba's. The smell of Jana is upon you. This may have been true enough. They yelled, adding, We will kill you, white-faced goat. We will kill you, little yellow monkey, for none who are not enemies come here from the land of the Black Kenda. Kill us, then, I answered, and bring the curse of the child upon you. Bring famine, bring hail, bring war. These words were, I think, well chosen. At any rate, they induced a pause in their murderous intentions. For a while they hesitated, all talking together at once. At last the advocates of violence appeared to get the upper hand, and once more a number of men began to dance about us, waving their spears, and crying out that we must die who came from the Black Kenda. I sat down upon the ground, for I was so exhausted that at the time I did not greatly care whether I died or lived, while Hans drew his knife and stood over me, cursing them as he had cursed at Jana. By slow degrees they drew nearer and nearer. I watched them with a kind of idle curiosity, believing that the moment when they came with an actual spear-thrust would be our last, but, as I have said, not greatly caring because of my mental and physical exhaustion. I had already closed my eyes that I might not see the flash of the falling steel, when an exclamation from Hans caused me to open them again. Following the line of the knife with which he pointed, I perceived a troop of men on camels emerging from the gates of the village at full speed. In front of these, his white garments fluttering on the wind, rode a bearded and dignified person in whom I recognized Harut, Harut himself, waving a spear and shouting as he came. 
Our assailants heard and saw him also, then flung down their weapons as though in dismay, either at his appearance or his words, which I could not catch. Harut guided his rushing camel straight at the man who I presumed was their leader, and struck at him with his spear as though in fury, wounding him in the shoulder and causing him to fall to the ground. As he struck, he called out, "'Dog, would you harm the guests of the child?' Then I heard no more, because I fainted away. End of chapter 14